In times of political upheaval at home, it's worth taking stock of how much the world has changed for the better for people across the globe. As we continue to mark Cato's 40th anniversary, we'll talk to Cato's Marion Tupi and Ian Vasquez about human progress across the globe and what could threaten it. And we'll take your questions next. Thank you for joining for us for this 40th anniversary sponsor briefing series. I'm Caleb Brown, Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our live uh, personal discussions between Cato staff and sponsors. This year, our briefing center on the 40th anniversary of Cato. Our next briefing will be September 26th at noon uh, Eastern time. It will feature Cato adjunct scholar Ryan Maui discussing hurricanes in today's political climate. I'd also like to uh, refer you to our Cato 40th anniversary webpage uh, linked below, which has lots of resources, a timeline of Cato's history and testimonials from policymakers, journalists, and leaders in the liberty movement. We've also commissioned a series of essays examining the future of a free society. Today, we're talking with Ian Vasquez, co-author of the Human Freedom Index and director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute, and Marion Tupi, who is editor of humanprogress.org. We'll link to their bios in the chat box below. Uh, but first, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this conversation will be driven mostly by your questions, so please enter those into the chat box, and we'll try to get to as many of them as we can over the course of the next half hour or so. And thank you especially to people who submitted questions ahead of time. They are first up in the queue. If you have any questions, uh, send them to Harrison Moore, Cato's Director of Development, uh, and uh, any other questions you have ahead of any of our e-briefings to, to him. His address is hmore at cato.org. So, uh, Ian and Marion, uh, not a day goes by that there isn't a headline pointing to a natural disaster. We have many around the world uh, just recently related to flooding. Um, there are armed conflicts and uh, power grabs by dictators. Uh, most recently, apparently, the plan in Venezuela is that uh, people should be eating more rabbits. Um, <laughs> so does this really tell the story and uh, what pushback would you give against people who've concluded, well, things are just obviously getting worse? Well, thank you, Caleb. And uh, thanks to uh, all of our sponsors um, for uh, watching and for supporting us. Uh, humanprogress.org exists uh, in order to collect and promote data about human well-being. And uh, what we are hoping to achieve is to bridge the gap uh, between public perception of uh, humanity and life on Earth, and the reality, which is much better. Um, too many people tend to think that the world is actually getting worse, and the reasons for pessimisms are varied. Our brains have probably evolved uh, in order to prioritize bad news. Uh, newspapers lead with bad stories, with catastrophes, floods, and murders because bad news sells. If it, if it bleeds, it leads, as the newspapers uh, say. And of course, social media also plays a role um, because it makes catastrophes much more immediate uh, and uh, much more intimate. Uh, something may happen on the other side of the world, but you know about it in a few seconds and you almost feel like you're a part of it. You feel personally vulnerable when bad things happen. In reality, it is very difficult to find indicators of human well-being, although there are some. 
where the world is not getting better. And I think that one of the most important indicators of human well-being is what happened to individual incomes uh, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution about 250 years ago. Uh, global incomes per capita have increased, adjusted for inflation, tenfold, from about $3 a day to $30 a day. And that's a global increase. In the United States, they increased by 16 or 17 times uh, in real terms. In China, after that country started to liberalize in the late 1970s, they've increased 16-fold, again, adjusted for inflation in the last 40 years alone. And of course, let's not forget life expectancy. For uh, the best part of the existence of our species, 300,000 years, life expectancy was anywhere between 20 five and 30 years. As late as 1900, in the most advanced parts of the world, which is to say in Western Europe and in North America, life expectancy was only 50 years. Today, globally, life expectancy is 70 years. In America, it is 80 years. And in Japan, it's 90 years. So the world is getting better, and we need to get the word out there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and I, we think that uh, <clears throat> human freedom has a lot to do with this story. That is to say, that this vast increase that we've seen around the world in improvement in human freedom over the past several decades is itself a measure of human progress, and that human freedom plays a central role in human progress. And that's one of the reasons why at Cato, for a long time, we've uh, paid special attention at tracking uh, human freedom. Uh, carefully around the world, and it's one of the reasons why uh, recently we created the Human Freedom Index along with the Fraser Institute in Canada and the Liberalis Institute in Germany, which is this broad measure of human freedom that looks at personal, civil, uh, and economic uh, measures of freedom in uh, countries around the world. We're looking at 70 or more different indicators in each in each country. and. Uh, there are a lot of interesting findings uh, from that, but uh, I'll just start out uh, by, by emphasizing the fundamental importance of economic freedom as, as a fundamental human right. And this is a point that I think a lot of advocates of human rights and advocates of, of human development don't uh, sufficiently appreciate. We have a graph uh, uh, that the Fraser Institute puts together with, on their work on economic freedom that shows that more economic freedom, there's more prosperity. That in itself is not surprising, but I think what's, what's impressive is that apparently small differences in levels of economic freedom can make uh, big differences in terms of results, and that's something that countries like India and China have discovered over the past several decades. By increasing their levels of economic freedom by a couple of points, they can reach 8, 9, 10% growth rates for decades, and then they transform in that way their entire countries and really uh, transform uh, the globe. The other point that I would make related to economic freedom is that there's a strong relationship between economic freedom and personal freedoms. Uh, one way of, of stating this is that if you want to live in a country with high levels of personal freedom, you better have a relatively high level of economic freedom in that country, and that's what the data shows uh, that uh, we've been looking at. This is empirical evidence. And it makes sense, too, because the control of economic life, as someone once said, is the control of life itself. So the more you liberalize, the more people have uh, a better ability to lead their own lives. The point here, of course, 
is that uh, human freedom in all its dimensions are important and they're uh, supportive uh, of each other. And this is something that's especially relevant at a time when we're seeing populism and even harder uh, authoritarian forms of populism popping up around the world. All right. So we're going to go to questions right now. But if you have any questions for Ian or Marion, please enter them into the chat box. And again, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can over the course of the next half hour. Uh, I'll begin with this one. Um, what institutions are most important to the promotion of economic and personal freedom? Well, this is, a, this is an excellent question. In my view, uh, property rights uh, really are the cornerstone of not just economic freedoms, but personal freedoms. And so out of property rights, you get order, you get rules, you get uh, the evolution uh, of the rule of law, which is another institution that's very important in the West that took eight centuries to, to develop. These, in my view, are, are cornerstone institutions. And a lot of countries uh, in the world don't have property rights, and thus they don't have a good rule of law. Um, they have large governments, and they're trying to do judicial reforms and that kind of thing, but they don't get to, to the rule of law. It's very helpful to look at the way that liberty developed in the places where liberty actually took root in order to have a better idea of what kinds of things tend to, to work in terms of uh, reforming uh, societies. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I uh, always emphasize that the, the size of government matters for developing countries. Uh, a lot of developing countries have large uh, si size of government, which in my uh, view uh, is inconsistent with the rule of law, especially because the institutions haven't developed there. And so it's a recipe for arbitrary rule, which is exactly the opposite of size of, uh, of the rule of law. And that makes uh, a free society much more difficult to develop, as opposed to the West, where you have the rule of law, and only after that, size of government grew. But the institution of the rule of law still exists. Maybe it's weakened, but this is not at all comparable to what happens in much of the developing world. So property rights, the rule of law, and finally, I would say free speech and free association matter a whole lot. All right. A uh, question here from Phil Harvey. Thank you for the question, <clears throat> Phil. Uh, he says, freedom houses, freedom in the world has been deteriorating for 11 years. Democracy is taking a hit. Ian's index, which correlates strongly with democracy, appears to be about uh, steady over recent years. What is the difference between the two indices? And is the Cato index perhaps a bit too cheerful? Well, that's a good question. These are, these are uh, compatible indexes, but they're different, uh, and they're different in some uh, key ways. I'm very fond of, the, of uh, Freedom House's uh, re report, uh, but they're measuring some things that are different than us. They measure political freedom. We're not measuring political freedom, though we consider it to be important. We're measuring freedoms that are consistent with the idea of negative uh, liberty, the idea that uh, is consistent with the absence of coercive constraint. Uh, and what we find, as, as uh, Phil uh, mentioned, is that there's a strong relationship between human freedom and uh, political liberty. But sometimes, under democracies, you see reductions in, in freedom. And we have been seeing that. One of, that's one big difference uh, between our, our indexes. The other big difference is that we 
have a lot of indicators, 42 different indicators, on economic freedom. And um, the Freedom House Index hardly looks at economic freedom or measures it. And uh, we think that economic freedom is quite important. And what's happened in the last uh, several years, almost 10 years, certainly since the financial crisis, is that in response to the financial crisis, a number of countries increased spending and uh, regulations and arbitrary type of measures that have reduced the level of, of economic freedom, including uh, rule of law indicators. And as some of that spending has come to an end, as some of the economies have recovered, economic freedom has begun to increase. And so in our index, we do see a decline overall of human freedom, but it's not as pronounced as what Freedom House looks at when it includes political freedoms but doesn't include economic freedoms. Is uh, political freedom sort of a canary in the coal mine, or is that something that comes comes later? I think that's a very good question that we're going to need a lot more data to, to be able to answer with confidence. We, our index goes back to 2008. So we really only have uh, about seven or so years of, of data on overall human freedom. We have a lot of decades of data on economic freedom, but on overall human freedom indicators, it's much shorter. And I don't think it's enough time to be able to tell because these are complex relationships, which of course is the point of constructing this. It's surprising that a lot of the index, uh, a lot of the indicators that we use are so recent. Milton Friedman used to tell us when we would get together for these economic freedom meetings once a year, and he would participate every now and then, he would say, you guys have to move beyond just measuring economic freedom, you have to measure human freedom. And we would all say, oh, yes, yes, but it was impossible then to do it because there just wasn't enough data. So we're using the data that exists, but the data that exists is recent. And that's a, a sort of an empirical limitation. All right. Uh, to you, Marion, is there one statistic that really tells the story of uh, human progress? You mentioned the hockey stick, where we see this giant increase in uh, wealth around the globe, um, at which, correspond, which correlated with a huge amount of population growth around the world as well. So what, what is the, the one thing or the two things that really tell the story? Well, even though a lot of people like to complain about how difficult life is, and no doubt sometimes it is, the reality is that people prefer living um, to dying. They enjoy their time on Earth. They, they go th through tremendous um, amounts of expenditure and effort to try to keep alive. And so to see people living longer, um, even in developing countries, developing countries are catching up with the West at a rapid pace is a, is a wonderful thing. And of course, any parent you talk to, the, the, the greatest fear they have in their lives is to see their children die. And so the, probably the most fantastic statistic that you can point to is the dramatic decline in infant mortality. The fact is that um, before the modern era, a typical woman uh, could expect to see a quarter of babies born to her die uh, before, um, before the age of five. Um, you know, so the dramatic decline in uh, in infant mortality, I would I would say, uh, is uh, obviously one of the best indicators of human well-being, and that is tied also to uh, the increase in uh, life expectancy. Those two are interrelated. Okay, is there a reason why we might see uh, some a higher rate of infant mortality in very developed nations uh, as opposed to nations that are pretty developed? 
Um, well, we have obviously seen um, some reversals in uh, in uh, infant mortality in countries which uh, uh, were, for example, relatively well developed, such as Venezuela, uh, which embraced uh, socialism in the late 1990s under under Hugo Chavez and now under Maduro, and because of the economic catastrophe, which almost inevitably follows uh, after introduction of socialism, there has been a dramatic decline in medical care, uh, availability of drugs, uh, even electricity to run incubators. And so um, we see terrible stories of, uh, of children dying in Venezuela left and right because of economic mismanagement, a completely preventable man-made catastrophe. All right. If you have questions for uh, Ian or Marion, please enter them into the chat box and we'll get to as many of them as we can over the course of the next 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, we have a question from uh, Dave Hood. Thank you for the question, Dave. Uh, from the fall of the Roman Empire to Nazi Germany and beyond, there are many examples throughout history of regression of advanced civilizations to the depths of barbarism. I'm especially interested in any ideas where we might have about how to prevent such catastrophes. Thanks. Um, thanks for that question. Um, well, our work on human progress uh, and, and the concept of human progress, which we have embraced, is not deterministic. It is looking at today compared to the past, and it says humanity has made tremendous progress from where we have been. We are not concerned with the sort of idealistic, deterministic concept of human progress, which talks about comparing today with some sort of a imagined utopia, which nobody has ever seen or been to. So compared to the past, we have done extremely well, uh, but there is no silver bullet in terms of preventing humanity from backsliding. Um, I hope that the lessons that we have learned from human catastrophes that we can document, First World War, Second World War, Cambodian massacres, uh, Holocaust, and so forth, um, will, will make people think twice about undertaking uh, the kinds of social experiments that uh, humanity has undertaken during the 20th century. Oh, I think that's right. There's no silver bullet. I do think that in terms of human progress, there is something called moral progress, which is something that uh, Steven Pinker at Harvard has, has highlighted. I mean, people do learn, and morality evolves. I mean, uh, a couple of centuries ago, slavery was considered normal, and nobody, hardly anyone in the world, uh, would find that acceptable today. And a lot, likewise, um, same-sex relationships 50 years ago, or even 25 years ago in, in many advanced countries, uh, was uh, looked down upon. There's a lot of moral progress going on. I think that that's helpful in order to maintain a, a free society. But to the extent that we can um, defend institutions and, and institute them, like uh, um, checks and balances and separations of power and the kinds of institutions that prevent the concentration of power to the extent that we can do that, that's, uh, that's helpful. That in itself, uh, of course, is not enough. You have to have some uh, amount of consensus in society, it seems to me, uh, that those values that underlie those institutions um, are respected and well-regarded. Uh, because after all, those institutions depend on that. And if the, those values don't exist, then uh, those institutions aren't going to last very long. When trust in institutions collapse, you have a real problem. And in fact, 
that's exactly the story of so many developing countries. I can tell you that's the story of, uh, of Latin American countries where nobody trusts institutions, and that's when the strong man comes in to, to, to save the day. I'm afraid that uh, we're seeing some of that in, in advanced countries, not to the same degree as, as in Latin America, but some, some elements of that. I feel like I've been watching a, a Latin American movie. Where have you been watching this movie? <laughs> Well, in the United States and parts of Europe where populist uh, rhetoric and, and populist uh, political uh, movements have, have come up, and they've coincided with the decline in trust, according to the Pew and Gallup polls, in most of the major institutions in the United States, big business, the Supreme Court, the media. Um, we can... Uh, speculate as to why that is. I have a feeling that the last uh, couple of administrations before this one did a lot to undermine trust in, in institutions by um, engaging in crony capitalism, by uh, increasing the size of government, by uh, violating privacy, by undermining uh, property rights and so on. I think that that did a lot to uh, create this impression that is in, in large part in part correct that the system serves the elite uh, um, more than it more than it should that there is a something like crony capitalism go, going on that this is unfair and and so on um, and I think that that's uh, certainly the kind of theme that uh, helped Donald Trump get to power with um, a platform that includes a lot of things that of course are contrary to to freedom, to protectionism, and so on. Um, and it doesn't help that uh, he, he and others in Europe and so on constantly rail against the judiciary, the media, and so on. Uh, if you look at the polls, they continue to show that trust in those institutions are low. And so, so far, those institutions have held up but there's a lot of damage that can still be done. All right. A uh, question here from a sponsor, Zach Bagden. Uh, Zach, thank you very much. It would seem all individuals globally would prefer liberty, but uh, it also seems that some global players, nation states, and multinational organizations are working against it. Uh, who are these leaders of the counter-liberty movement? I mean, I think it depends on what part of the world you you look at, but clearly there are obvious candidates. Uh, Putin in Russia is one of the global leaders. He has instituted what I think uh, cannot be called anything other than fascism. He's got a, a popular a, a authoritarian uh, regime uh, that centralizes all sorts of power in the, in the fascist uh, tradition, and he uses that to export... Um, those ideas and that model to Western Europe, to candidates, to political parties, and so on. Uh, there is a, a rise of nationalism in China, and that has led to the backtracking on all sorts of, of personal and even economic liberties in China that are very uh, worrisome. Uh, in Latin America, of course, the, the, the leader of the populist movement was Hugo Chavez. Now, uh, the difference between Latin America and the rest of the world seems to be that that Populism already crested and has failed uh, years ago in Latin America, and it has been in the past couple of years rejected at the polls and in de democratic elections in country after country. And if there's a silver line, lining to the disaster of populism in 
Venezuela is that nobody in Latin America wants to follow that example. It's the exa exact example of what not to do. So in some sense, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that's uh, what we can look forward uh, to in the rest of the world, that these regimes will collapse, but we certainly can't uh, sit back and, and wait for that to happen. Those are some of the leaders. Turkey's, uh, Turkey's also uh, an important country in the Islamic world that was going along on the right path uh, of modernization and democracy and so on, and then about four years ago, uh, started turning authoritarian in the uh, in the Putin style uh, tradition. All right, uh, the United States in the Human Freedom Index is among 159 countries. Uh, the uh, chart we have here indicates that the United States has fallen in recent years, which uh, tracks along with its uh, decline in the Economic uh, Freedom uh, Index. So. What does that mean for the U.S.? Well, it's ranked number 23 on our Human Freedom Index, and uh, I think that that uh, clashes with what a lot of Americans and even much of the world thinks of when they think of the United States as uh, traditionally a beacon of freedom. I think that uh, uh, we can no longer say that, uh, that it is. Uh, and um, if you look at most of the indicators, you've seen these declines. I have a graph there that just looks at the economic uh, freedom rankings that where we have a lot of long-term data and it shows a decline for decades from 1970 to the year 2000 the United States was ranked two or three or so on economic freedom and then uh, a long-term decline began uh, with the around the Bush administration and uh, if you look at all of the different indicators uh, of economic freedom. There's five main indicators on monetary policy and size of government and so on. All of them have fallen. But what's worrisome is that the biggest decline is the one that has to do with uh, the legal indicators, that is the rule of law. We have and that. You we have, have that. that. We can there. bring that this up. Is a so. very, this is a very steep uh, fall for the United States and it's very worrisome. And we think that that has to do a lot with the kinds of the things that have happened during this time period. The the kind of crony capitalism that people um, have seen, the erosion of property rights with uh, Supreme Court rulings and other uh, activities, the, the erosion of, of contract law with some of the arbitrary government uh, actions, um, the violations that occur as a result of the war on terror and the war on drugs of both property rights and of, of privacy and so on. And so when you have uh, such a deterioration in, in the rule of law, uh, you have a real problem. And this, uh, I, would, I, I would add, this is a problem not just for the United States, but for the world, because the United States isn't just one more country. The United States is the most important economy in the world and, and traditionally one of the freest countries uh, in the world. When its freedom declines, it affects freedom and prosperity around the world. One point that uh, I would like to make about, uh, about human progress is that um, I don't know if you've shown the graph yet of this that, that uh, Marion put together of this tremendous amount of progress on all sorts of different indicators, uh, infant mortality, life expectancy, and so on. But what that shows is that developing poor countries have been catching up to, to rich countries. The gap between the rich and the poor in terms of standards of living have been closing very fast. They've been closing at a rate that's even faster than the, the rate 
of the difference in per capita income, which is to say that progress itself is, is speeding up. For any given level of, of uh, income today, you get a lot more in terms of standard of living than was the case 30 years ago. It's not just that countries are getting richer. They're getting a lot more out of the, a certain level of income. So uh, my point is that if you look even at countries that have done little to uh, increase their level of freedom, they've seen a tremendous amount of human progress on those indicators as, as well, indicators of, of uh, standard of living. And why is that? Because they're benefiting from the freedom in the freest countries. Freedom in the freest countries benefits even the unfree. They're getting the technology, the medicines, the innovation, the capital. They're using iPhones uh, to, to better their lives. Uh, it is just as, uh, as Hayek observed uh, more than 50 years ago. Freedom doesn't just benefit the free. And I think that that's one more reason why we should be concerned about the drop in freedom in the United States. All right. Uh, a question from Joe Stavely. Joe, thank you. Uh, Joy Stavely, my apologies. Thank you for the question, Joy. Uh, do you think the United States appears to be moving faster towards socialism and even Marxism? Well, um, I think that, um, well, obviously economic freedom uh, in the United States has peaked in the year 2000, and since then it has been in a uh, rapid decline. And as somebody who actually spent, I, I spent my childhood in a socialist country, and so um, whenever I see uh, bad trends going on in the United States, I'm sort of feeling very sensitive to that. Um, I think that uh, universities, colleges um, pose a particularly serious problem for the, promo for the promoters of freedom because of um, speech codes, disinvitations, uh, political correctness, um, uh, and, and uh, shutting down uh, speech. Um, you, can, you, you can see how uh, in a situation where ideas cannot be freely expressed, problems cannot be appropriately addressed. And so this sort of neo-Marxist attack on uh, especially freedom of speech is particularly worrying to me. We should be concerned about the intellectual climate, no doubt, but I think that, uh, that, that uh, the United States isn't anywhere close to, to a Marxist reality or a socialist state. I mean, the difference between uh, the United States today and so many countries around the world that have uh, actual socialist policies is enormous, and we're not close to that. We should be concerned about, about the policy direction and so on. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the economic freedom indicators of the United States, you do see that after the financial crisis, you, there, there's this drop that we saw in that graph. And more recently uh, now, economic freedom is starting to, to increase in the United States as stimulus spending comes to an end and some uh, other measures improve. We're certainly not back to, to where we were historically in this country, but um, we're not anywhere close to a Marxist <coughs> reality, though there is, uh, t there is troubling rhetoric. I agree with that fully. Of course, we are not anywhere near it, thank goodness. Um, but I, I just want to go back to the point about the importance of having different ideas uh, expressed freely. If uh, advocates of small government or advocates of free markets are shut down uh, as fascists, for example, on campuses, 
uh, when uh, advocacy of the sort of ideas that we, Ian and I, stand for uh, cannot be freely expressed, then the only thing that you have remaining is the advocates of big government, the advocates of socialized healthcare, the advocates of socialized, socialized education and so forth. So we cannot allow that space to be monopolized by, by the other side simply because they tend to be um, more vocal and sometimes even violent. There are two uh, things, Marion, that you point to that I think are uh, incredibly notable, even as we see a lot of bad news uh, around us here in the United States. Uh, they are food consumption and hours worked. And those things sort of work together. Uh, so can you, can you, sort of you sort of unpack those and, and what they really mean for in ways that we might not be able to immediately perceive? Thanks. So for most of human history, people were concerned primarily about not getting enough food. Uh, food shortage, calorie shortage, uh, was uh, always a serious problem. That's primarily because um, however many calories the human being created in a day, uh, he or she almost immediately consumed, either them or their pack animals. And so humanity spent most of its existence on, on the sort of boundary of starvation. But with... Uh, um, improved uh, fertilization with improved types of crops uh, and also with communications and transport, um, food security has increased. We are producing more, but we are also able to bring food to areas where previously we wouldn't know there was a famine or, or something like that. Um, the United States Department of Agriculture estimates that a moderately active woman should consume about 1,800 calories per day, moderately active male should consume about 2,500 calories per, per person per, per day, per day. Um, and uh, what we have seen that even in Africa, uh, daily consumption of calories now on average is higher than 2,500 calories per person per day. So um, famines have basically disappeared um, outside of war zones in the world. And that is obviously a terrific development. Uh, I'm old enough to remember in the early 1980s all those images of um, babies starving in Ethiopia and Eritrea and people thought this was the future of humanity where in fact it was not. And let's not forget that in the 1970s people believed that overpopulation and overconsumption of natural resources would lead to global famines. Well, I think that we can put that one to bed, uh, to bed at least for now. All right. And with respect to hours work? Well, and like, with respect to hours work, well, the, the reality is that we, uh, we earn more money, um, but we work less. Um, between 1950 and 2016, the average number of hours per worker per year in the United States declined by 11 percent. Uh, in uh, Western Europe, it has declined in some places by as much as a third. Um, so uh, we th that means that we not only earn more money, but we also have more leisure time with which we can travel. We can read books, uh, you know, visit art museums and things like that. Things like that, and consume beer, presumably consume beer. those empty calories that we can consume. Uh, before we wrap up here, do you either of you have any uh, parting thoughts that our uh, audience ought to keep in mind about human freedom and human progress? I would simply want to conclude by saying that um, even though the newspapers and uh, uh, the, uh, the, t uh, the news on TV uh, may be filled with uh, 
bad stuff, bad stories happening. Um, I, I always encourage people to keep a broader perspective and to understand that 99.9% of humanity is going to bed um, in relative safety um, and relative comfort, um, especially if you compare it to the past. So if you are comparing today to where we were, even as, as early as 200 years ago, um, life is certainly better uh, than it used to be. I think that um, with the rise of uh, nationalist and popular sentiments in so much of, of the world, or at least policies or political movements, there's also a rise in the interests in human freedom broadly. And uh, you know, we now have had several decades in this era of globalization where uh, countries like China and India and so on have developed. And this, this, by the way, this interest in, in human freedom, I think, is not just uh, on the part of uh, interested citizens, but also uh, I've noticed a renewed interest by some policymakers and uh, academics. And um, from the perspective of developing countries, this becomes more important than ever. So we now have had several decades of, of globalization and development that have transformed entire countries like China, like India, like Turkey, and so on. And they have gone through different stages of development where they are now at a point uh, in which the exchange and the free flow of ideas, the market uh, for ideas, uh, to, to put it uh, uh, in one way, becomes more important for development itself to be able to criticize the status quo, whether it's government or the business or important people in society, the elite. You shouldn't be uh, afraid of doing that. You should also have uh, trial and error and, and so on, especially as countries move into the service uh, services industry and, and so on. This is the natural way of development. And yet you have countries like China, like Turkey, and so on, that are kind of at a crossroads. They have to determine whether they crack down on the media and personal freedoms and so on, which is what they're doing, or go in the direction of uh, some other developing countries, which is to allow more, more of those freedoms that, in my view, are consistent with development itself. And it seems to me that precisely in the area of freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom, broadly speaking, because you need broad freedom in order to, to, to get that, um, you're going to start to see differences in development outcomes because we're at a point now when so many poor countries are not just doing the easy work of catching up. They're at a different stage where broad freedom becomes important. And I think that uh, the work that we're doing at the Cato Institute on human progress and on human freedom can be helpful in showing those connections. And I personally thank the, the donors and the sponsors for uh, helping make that work possible. All right. Uh, that is all the time we have for this edition of the 40th anniversary Cato Sponsor Briefing. Thank you to Ian and Marion for joining us. Thank you to our production crew for making this happen and for Harrison Moore for putting all of this together. Uh, before you sign off, I would appreciate it if you uh, would watch a video that we've put together on Cato's 40th anniversary showing Cato's impact over the years in telling the story of the Cato Institute. And on September 26th, please join us for another sponsor briefing featuring Ryan Maui, Cato adjunct scholar on hurricanes in today's political climate. And once again, thank you for your support of the Cato Institute because without that support, we would not be able to do our work promoting free markets, 
limited government, individual liberty, and peace. Talk to you again next time.